welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. And, uh, and that's pretty much the point of John's gospel. John says, I wrote all these things so that you could believe. Um, and there's loads more to write about Jesus, but I picked these things out so that you would believe and know who Jesus is. So that's why we've picked them, because we felt like we wanted to, as a church, we call ourselves Christians, that means Christ right at the beginning of what we believe, and we wanted to just kind of say, okay, what does that look like? And take a fresh look at that, so that's what we're going to do today. Um, And today we're in John chapter 9, a part of John chapter 9, where Jesus heals someone who was born blind. And what you see is it's a bit like, so I did English Lit as my degree, Um, workplace psychology, that sounds like a degree that would have, you know, meaning to it, and a job at the end of it. English literature has neither, um, but it is a lot of fun. And one thing that you get uh, is that every time you read things, um, you kind of, you know, find find it, find it, the, the way that they're written interesting. This part of John chapter 9, it's written a little bit like one of those Shakespeare plays you might have read at school. It's got sort of four or five different acts to it. And it's basically like where someone walks in and then they have a conversation with someone else. And then the plot thickens a little bit and they move away and have another conversation. So what we're going to do is we're going to pop into this story in a few different places at these few different dialogue sort of act moments. Um, And we're going to see what God's up to what people's reaction to Jesus is or what people's reaction is to what Jesus has done and then what that might mean for us as disciples and what choices those people might have had in the moment. Okay, so John chapter 9, I'm going to read. It'll come up on the screen um, if you need to or you can get your own Bible out. It's John chapter 9 and we're going to read from verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Okay, so the first character we meet, obviously Jesus sees the man. The man doesn't really talk. Jesus doesn't start off the conversation. It's the disciples who do. And what they do is they ask a question that's based on this presupposition that they have from their culture and their tradition, their understanding of the Bible. Okay, what's the preconception? What they ask is, um, who sinned? Was it this man? who would have been quite difficult before he was born, or was it his parents who sinned, who made him blind? Because their their kind of paradigm says that if something bad happens to you, it must be because you did something wrong. Okay? If there's that in that very specific way. So they ask this question, and the only two options they give Jesus are these two options that come out of their presupposition. Now Jesus, as he often does, answers at a little bit of a right angle to the question that they've asked. He says, actually, it wasn't either of those things. It wasn't the sin of him. It wasn't the sin of his parents. It was so that um, the glory of God might be displayed in him. Now, we can't extrapolate and say, well, that's what all sickness is about then. God makes people sick to glorify himself. That's not true either, because Jesus says different things with each healing. What happens is that Jesus kind of shatters their paradigm a little bit and points them to something different. He says, actually, it's not, it's not about how morally good are you and therefore what's going to happen to you. It's about who Jesus is and how he wants to come in. Whatever your situation is, 
and change it and make it better. Now, the reason we might have like, an idea like that, an idea, is because we want to have a universe that makes logical sense, don't we? And maybe that's just me. I, mean, I like things that make sense, and I want to know, like, if I, if I do this, then this will happen, and if I don't do this, then that won't happen, and that's good. And because I want to feel safe, I want to know that if I do the right things, then good things will happen and life will work out well. But actually, we know that's not true, is it? That's not quite how life works. I also want to know, I want to know I'm safe. I also want to know that I'm right. I don't like being wrong. If you know me, you'll be nodding, yes, indeed. You don't like, I, I find it hard to admit that I'm wrong. A lot of us do. And actually, that's, that's another thing that makes it difficult. When Jesus comes with this different idea, it doesn't fit the paradigm, it doesn't fit the question. Jesus is giving you a different answer. It's, it's hard to accept it sometimes, because actually it means admitting that you got something wrong. So the disciples, what do they do? Well, they ask questions. They're a bit stuck in their kind of their, their previous idea, but they're open to the response, aren't they? We don't hear from them again, but they do, not in this chapter anyway, but they carry on following Jesus. They carry on finding out what he's doing, which is a great thing to do. Um, the guy, actually, we don't hear from the guy at all in this first bit, do we? He just does what he's told. Now, that, that is another... Uh, Great discipleship thing, isn't it? It's something I'm still learning. I've been a Christian 15 years. Just do what you're told is still the first lesson that I've not quite learned properly when God said things. But this guy does what Jesus asked him to, and he gets his sight back. It's amazing. It's a massive miracle. Um, and what we see is that it starts this chain of events where people come and come in, interact with him, come up against what's happened, and it makes them have to question their paradigms. It makes them question whether they're safe or whether they've got everything right, and it puts them in this uncomfortable spot as well. Okay, so the next little bit of action we're going to see, verse 8, is the neighbours. Verse 8, his neighbours and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, oh no, it only looks like him. You can imagine them sort of talking to each other, kind of like, is that him? Is that him? Is that guy? I don't know, it can't, be, it can't be him, he's walking around. Like, that's, that's the conversation. He himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went, and I washed, and I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Okay, so the neighbours, like we said, they sort of argue about whether it's him or not. Now, they might have done this en masse and just gone to him on point and gone like, sorry, we've been talking about this for like a week now. Can you just confirm, are you the guy who used to not be able to see and now you can't? Just to check, because that seems unlikely to me. It might be that they do that. But what also is more likely to have happened is that these are the people he sees every day. They're the people he sees on the street and in the shop. They're the people that he sees wherever he goes, like on his sort of daily life. And he's going to answer this question and tell this story again and again, isn't he? Like if you break, have you ever like broken a limb and you spend two weeks explaining how you broke the limb to everyone you see, whether you know them or not, because that's what, that's what they want to ask about, isn't it? It's really obvious. And so that's what's happening. The neighbours, maybe you've got a neighbourhood WhatsApp group. Maybe they're all on the WhatsApp group. Like, have you seen him? Have you talked to him about his arm? That's what they're doing, talking about it. And that story would be retold again and again. And that's what the neighbours do. So they ask questions and they want to know more. They're like, okay, well, that's fine. They take the evidence, don't they, at face value. And it's very hard to deny. If you had a friend who had a problem for a long time, 
and then suddenly that problem had clearly radically changed, you would also ask the question, how did that happen? And then you might want to go and find out more. You wouldn't disbelieve them, or at least you probably wouldn't, because you'd experience that for yourself. And that man's story is just really powerful and really simple, isn't it? He doesn't really overthink it, and he doesn't really explain it. He just says, well, this guy they call Jesus sent me off, put some mud in my eyes, bit weird. Now I can see. That's how it went. That powerful story is actually one of the things that if you follow Jesus and you sometimes struggle to talk about Jesus, that really powerful story, that just the honest things that happen to you, that's probably the easiest way in, I find, to be able to talk about Jesus with people. Um, and that, it might be that you've had some really big experiences of God in your life. It might be that you've had, you just have a small kind of sense of, well, do you know what? I was trying to make this hard decision and I prayed about it and I felt a bit of a sense of peace, so I did that and it worked out. That kind of story is just as powerful for people, actually, who don't know God as, as maybe some of the things that we think are more unusual, especially if someone's not experienced it for themselves, that honest kind of story. We um, had a friend who was adamantly not a Christian at university. Uh, she's, a lovely, she's a really lovely woman, but she's very, very not, not into Jesus, not into church, very suspicious of the whole thing. And um, we were telling her this story just because it happened at church on the Sunday. So on the Monday, we were kind of telling people this story um, and talking about a guy who'd been sitting outside our church. One of our friends had prayed for him because he was a homeless guy and he'd sat there sort of regularly on a Sunday. And he'd managed to break his ankle, I think it was. Our friend prayed for him just very simply and naturally. And he'd done that thing, where, which I haven't seen very often. I've not seen loads of healings, but this was a bit dramatic. He did a bit of a stop and a double take and then sort of wiggled it and stood on it and tried it out and then started hopping around and jumping and, and swearing a bit because I he wasn't I mean he was excited that's fine um <laughs> so he was jumping about excited to the point where we were like okay slow down a bit because you haven't been to the doctor yet let's just just like let's just check this out before you hurt yourself more okay but as we told our friend this story she she went very still and very almost very pale and, and quite thoughtful. And at the end of the story, we said, are you okay? And she said, no, no. And she said, I, I, can't, I can't accept that happened. I, I know you're telling the truth. I can see that. I, don't, I trust you guys. But I, if I believe that's true, then I have to change everything else, don't I? I have to change everything else that I think. I have to change everything else that I believe and live by because this God I don't believe in would be real and I can't believe that. And she just went, no. And, and that's, that is, a, I mean, that is a choice you're very welcome to make. And it's a choice that we all actually have to make day by day, isn't it? Are we going to say yes to this, this weird, frightening, kind of destabilizing thing that might be God challenging us, that might be God kind of breaking into our paradigm and wanting us to change how we think? It's really hard to do, to make that choice. I can be honest about that. Um, I think the hardest sentence in the English language actually is, I was wrong. And the second hardest is, I'm sorry. You heard that before? So I think to be able to say that to someone is really difficult. Okay, so our next little act is when they, uh, verse 13 to 17, when they come and see the Pharisees. And we'll see these guys really find it difficult to admit that they are wrong. Okay, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. He just tells the same story again. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man isn't from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. 
But the others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided and they argued. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you got to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. Okay. So the Pharisees, if you've not come across them before, they're sort of the bad guy comes in off stage left and everyone goes, boo, in the New Testament. That's what we do with them. I won't make you do that because it's odd and we're all adults. And panto season is definitely over, isn't it, in February? But they're the sort of religious elite. And, and what they've done, the neighbours have brought this guy to him and they're trying to verify what's happened. Okay, you're, you're really spiritual, you're religious. They, he's saying this miracle's happened. Tell us, like, is it true? Is it, is it legit? Is it okay? And they struggle with this, don't they? Now, the Sabbath was this, um, this, this Jewish uh, tradition, this thing that, that happened through the Old Testament. Not so much, actually, in the New Testament. It's a little bit different. Um, but this thing where people would just not, not work for a day. The idea was that you had a day to rest. Everyone got a day to rest, which in the ancient world was quite a gift, as it is today. Um, and everyone would have a day to worship and to be with God and to be with family. Now, the Pharisees kept this, and most Jews would have tried to keep it. Um, but they were sort of a very strict sect. If you can imagine, like if you, um, like imagine a moral law is a bit like an edge of a cliff. So you're like, well, sin is like if I fall off the edge, okay, then I've done the morally wrong thing, which would be to work on the Sabbath. Okay, fine. That's all right. But then the Pharisees would go, well, I really don't want to do that. So I'm going to put a fence a bit, a bit far away from the cliff. So I'm, not, I'm never going to fall over. And then you might say, well, even that's a bit close. That's a bit, that's a bit morally dodgy. So I'm going to put another fence like back here. So I never, ever fall off the cliff. And you kind of get why that, would, why that would work. But what you've actually done is you've taken something that God meant to be, just have some fun and a rest once a week, guys, chill out, to this really high bar of what you can and can't do in a very rigid system where you can't go any, where you're so afraid of getting it wrong and going close to getting it wrong. It takes all the fun out of it. And it makes this real burden and difficulty on people. Jesus is, this is kind of Jesus' constant conversation with these guys in the New Testament. And, and what those things had kind of coalesced into at this point is this tradition that they just couldn't see beyond. They couldn't imagine that God would want to do something like heal somebody or help somebody on the Sabbath because it was so far away from their idea of morality. But the problem is, obviously, that's not Jesus' morality, is it? Jesus is like, there's a guy who's blind, I'm going to help him. There's a person in need. I'm going to help them, obviously. That's the work of God. And that's what he means by, while I'm in the world, I'm going to do the work of God. They're almost a bit Jack Nicholson, you know, that bit in A Few Good Memories, like, you can handle the truth. They can't do it. They see Jesus and they see this thing that he's done and they just can't. They keep asking the guy and his parents, did he really get healed? Even though he's right in front of him, they just can't handle it. And for me, that feels like that's actually really sad I know the Pharisees get a bad rap, but it's really sad. Can you imagine spending your whole life being as strict as you can, to be as holy as you can and as good as you can, and then God turns up and you miss it because you're so stuck in your paradigm of what you thought was right. You're so desperate to be safe and to be right and never to get it wrong that you get it completely wrong and miss it. We prayed for wisdom and courage earlier on for Esther. And wisdom and courage often mean we have to admit we got it wrong, don't we? But it takes a lot of bravery to do it. I wonder if I, my lovely assistant can come up. Can you come up, lovely assistant? <laughs> so I wanted to try and explain to you what it feels like, this experience of meeting Jesus. 
um, in this kind of destabilizing, making you, um, just, yeah, this, <laughs> you're right, in this kind of destabilizing sort of a way. Um, because it, it's, yeah, it's not, like, it's not like a bear trap. It's not like Jesus is waiting for you to get it wrong and goes, aha, there you are. It's, it's this moment where someone who loves you says, I've got a better plan for you than you think is possible, so trust me. And when I ask you to change something, just go with me, just do it, trust me, and we'll give it a try. So um, I feel like sometimes it's a bit like being on a wobble board. So we're going to make a little wobble board. If you can't see at the back, you can move closer. No, <laughs> he thinks I should do it on the table. Um, I don't think we're insured that well, so we'll not do that. Okay, we're going to try this. Okay, um, I'm just going to hold on to you because one of my arms is busy. Um, okay, so this is, this is for me what it feels like. There's a level of humility. I don't think we see a lot of humility in our culture, do we? Pride says I have to be safe and I have to be right all the time. And if I'm not right, then I'm unsafe because I might get called out on it and other people might not like me for it. Humility is being able to say, I'm a little bit wrong on a regular basis, but I can correct that. Now, if you try and stand on a wobble board <laughs> in a proud way that's rigid and says I'm right all the time, you're going to fall off. Okay? Because actually, the way to do it is to bend your legs a little bit and to just gently correct all the time back to the center. That's what you're doing on a wobble board, is you're gently correcting, oh, that's not quite there, or oh, I'm going to come back to the center. Okay, and that's what it feels like for me every time I read something from Jesus in one of these places where he just shatters what someone thought was true, where he's more loving to someone than I thought he would be, where he's more truthful to someone than I would dare to be, where he's funny, and I want him to be seriously spiritual. That's what it feels like to constantly come back to the center with Jesus. And I think there's something around faith I'm actually going to get off this because I'm worried. I'm worried I'm going to be the person outside church with a broken ankle next week and you're going to have to pray for me. Right, there we go. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure if the clap is relief or what there. Um, but there's something about this and there's something about an openness to God which involves having to be open to the fact that we might be wrong and that we might need a little help and we might need to readjust ourselves to centre but there's a real safety in that. And actually, I was quite glad you were holding on to me the whole time because God also, it isn't a bear trap. God isn't waiting for you to fall off and laugh. He wants that. Jesus keeps coming and we'll see it. He comes to this guy and he wants to reorientate him and help him get to this place of humility that says, I can be wrong, but I'm loved and I'm safe anyway. So the Pharisees, their decision is to, um, is to just dismiss it, isn't it? They don't ask questions. Um, they don't We've got the Pharisees, but there they go, yeah. They ask the questions and reject the answer, which is madness when you read it in the book, isn't it? You just think, what, what are you doing? You're crazy. But it's really easy to do if you, unless you can step outside that paradigm that you hold on to so tightly. And obviously for them, it's their whole status. It's their job. It's their identity as being this amazing spiritual person who gets everything right. And unless they learn how to admit that they were wrong and wobble back, and be okay with that, then they're going to miss what God is doing. And I love this moment. The guy actually understands more at this point than he's done before. You just, like, if, if you were doing it as a play, you'd have the two sets of Pharisees, and one of them would be going, well, he healed on the Sabbath, and that's, that's way, that's, that's towards our cliff edge. We don't like it. It's not morally legit when I've got a problem with this. They, they, they can't see it. And the other guys are going, well, okay, 
but that was a big miracle and I can't do that, so maybe that is God. And they're having this argument and the guy's just sort of watching them, sort of playing debate tennis like this. And then they say, what do you think? And he says, well, I'm going to go with he's a prophet because this one doesn't make sense, so I'm going to go with that one. And that's how his, his he starts to come together with who Jesus is. And then the third act, I'm not going to go through this because it's really long, and they just kind of, they literally just keep going around the same thing. The Pharisees keep calling people in, having the same question. And actually, it's really interesting. Verse 22 says, the parents, they call the parents of the guy in, and they don't know what to say because they're afraid. The Jewish leaders had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They'd already decided before the guy had been healed, before they'd called anyone in for an answer, before they'd asked any more questions, they'd already made a decision that they'd then said publicly and would have to stick to. Otherwise, they'd have to admit that they were wrong and they weren't happy to do that. They might lose their position. They weren't happy to do that, even if it meant missing what God was doing and missing out on what he had for them. And at the very end of that bit, verse 34, they answer the question. They show what their preconception is, don't they? Um, verse 34, we've got that up there. They say, you were born in utter sin. How can you teach us? And they cast him out. They, that question that the disciples asked, was it, them, was it the boy who sinned or was it his parents that made him blind? They've already answered that question. They're not even open to the fact that God might have a different and better and more truthful explanation for that. And so they chuck him out. Um, I had a friend who lived in, um, well, your cousin actually, in Texas, in rural Texas, where the wasps are like as big as your fingers. They're horrible. Um, and he stood on a wasp nest one time. And then uh, we, I didn't see him stand on it. I just saw him come pelting towards the lake, followed by this massive cloud of horrible wasps, throw himself into the water. And wasps are stupid and they can't swim. So they were just like above the water and he's swimming off underneath. And he was okay. He was okay. Um, but what had happened is it's fear, isn't it? He'd squashed their home, he'd squashed their structure, and their fear and their anger made him drive him out. That's what, this is what these Pharisees do. They drive him out. They can't be anywhere near him because they can't let him destroy who they think they are. And when Jesus hears about that, verse 35, when Jesus heard they'd thrown him out, he went and found him. And when he'd found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Did you notice that? The Pharisees keep calling people into them. The religious leaders keep calling people to them to find out Jesus goes and finds them. That's what Jesus wants to do. That's the difference between a lot of, I guess, but I'm, I'm saying, I was going to say between religious leaders, obviously I do lead a church and I am aware that I'm kind of talking to myself sometimes, but Jesus is not sometimes what we imagine Jesus would be. He's not the kind of leader who says, come to me and I will tell you things and I will, I will be over you. He says, I will come to you and I will meet with you and I'll help you where you are. And that's who we want to be, isn't it? If we follow him as well. Who is he? Who is this son of man? The man asked. Tell me so I might believe in him. Jesus says, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Okay. So that first. So that's the last bit. This man has decided that he's going to become a disciple of Jesus. After all these arguments he's gone through. And Jesus hasn't been with him. I love, I was kind of bothered by that. That Jesus hadn't just stayed with this guy the whole time. All these questions he's had to answer. But actually what Jesus has done is let him with his family and his neighbours and his leaders make a decision and come to a place where he's gone from, well I got healed and I don't really know why, to 
okay, I'm going to be your disciple. I'll worship you. I'll freely choose that. That for me is quite special. Jesus hasn't forced this choice on him. The guy's decided how he wants to live and what he's going to need to lose for Jesus. And then Jesus comes and scoops him up and helps him when he makes that decision. And this is a decision actually that Jesus wants uh, to give us, isn't it? He gives us a choice. We could be, we can ask questions and then reject the answer because we can't quite cope with our stuff being shifted. We're not happy to be um, destabilized in that sort of wobbly way. Or we can ask questions. And, and asking questions is, is absolutely fine. And doubt is absolutely fine. Um, I've got a friend who is who went blind, started to go blind when she was seven, um, went completely blind when she was 10 and is now in her 40s and is still blind. And we've prayed about that and we've cried about that. Um, and, and it's not changed. God does not always come in with the answer that we want. It's not, always, it's not always that easy. Again, it's not this logical, like, if I do this, then this will happen. That's not quite how it works. But Jesus is really happy with our struggle, and he's really happy with our doubt. What he wants is for us to wobble back to him and trust him to help us, and then he can come and help us. You can't really be helped by someone you don't trust to help you, is what I'm learning as well, isn't it? So these are our options when we come to Jesus. We can let ourselves be destabilized. We can let ourselves be wobbled and questioned. And we can allow ourselves to admit that we're wrong in whatever it is that God wants to come and help us with at that moment. If we want to change, we will need to do that, won't we? And as we do that, we can also know that Jesus is really happy to come and meet with us and help us in that. Okay, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to worship together again. The thing about doing this all together is that there's some things that the Bible says that are for everybody and then there's something God wants to do in each of us which is quite personal and us as a community which isn't necessarily something that that's <laughs> God's never in his goodness, going to only do that through one of us, okay? Um, because he's nice like that, and also because he genuinely wants us to help each other. So I'm going to pray, and we'll have some time to worship. Um, and then after we've worshipped, we'll give a moment to, to pray for each other, if you'd like to, or to come and pray for Esther and their family, or to grab a coffee. So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are safe, and you are right. That you do know what's going on and why things happen. And we thank you that you don't always tell us, actually. We thank you that you're trustworthy to bear the stuff we can't. We thank you that the things we can't change about ourselves, that we want to, that you are able to change. And we thank you that where we feel uncomfortable, actually that might be where you're at work. And I just want to pray for anyone here who has either felt like faith has been really uncomfortable for a long time. God, if that's you just wanting to get their attention or minister to them or help them, Lord, would you come and do that? God, if they felt guilty for not feeling a sort of peace or a sense of purpose um, that's clear, Lord, that might actually be you just working on them. So God, would you come and help them? And Lord, where we know we need to let you in and admit that we've struggled or been wrong. Or Lord, where we know we need to be open to you and ask a question, even if the answer is unusual or what we didn't expect. God, would you give us the courage and the wisdom to do that?
We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.